0: The crowd at Madison Square Garden went absolutely bonkers. They went absolutely insane all of a sudden. And so my eyes were like, what, what, is the case coming out? What's going on? What, why is everybody going crazy? And the, the guy next to me, he just like really calmly points up at the PA and he goes, Zeppelin, man. Hey everybody, I'm
1: Tommy. And I'm Tony. I'm Carlo. And this is Vinyl Salad. I think live albums were way more valuable to a 14-year-old than they were to a 20-year-old. When we got into this, we weren't yet of age where we could attend concerts so the next best thing was hearing music live
0: sure oh hell yeah because like i heard live albums obviously before i'd ever been to a concert i didn't even know what the experience was like being Mm. at a concert the first rock concert i ever went to was kiss with cheap trick opening up wow and and cheap trick came out and they played and threw kiss Ah. records into the audience and when the audience and when the audience saw that they were empty they threw him right back on stage. Um, but the music and the arena music was playing before Kiss came out. I'm just sitting there and, and teenagers behind me were offering me weed, and I, which I didn't want. And the crowd at Madison Square Garden went absolutely bonkers. They went absolutely insane all of a sudden. And so my eyes were like, what, what, is Kiss coming out? What's going on? What, why is everybody going crazy? And the the guy next to me, he just like, really calmly points up at the PA and he goes, Zeppelin, man. Because <laughs> a, whole, a whole lot of love was playing and a whole, lot of, love, whole lot of love was wow. enough to get everybody yep. at Madison Square Garden really wow. fired up. Yep. And so I sat there. And I was like, well, <laughs> I need to listen to this Zeppelin. I would listen very carefully. All of these people that I think are cool because they're all older than me and they're at a KISS concert, if they're excited about this Zeppelin, I need to know more about it.
1: One of the things you learn when you start going to concerts is that the band that you want to see is in charge of the warm-up music generally, right? And they're generally playing Mm. the music that they really dig.
2: Well, you know, Paul Stanley has made it very, very clear, the bands he really liked growing up. We will eventually be talking a lot about Kiss because we felt a connection to them because they did not grow up way too far from us, right? Paul and Gene were in Queens, which is mm-hmm. very much an extension of Yonkers. Yeah. Uh, Ace was in the Bronx, and uh, Peter Cruz is in Brooklyn, but you know, Paul always said the bands he really liked, if were the bands who put on a show and didn't have their back turned, not to name some bands that would, but he really loved those bands who, who, who put themselves out there with these really, really dominant lead singers like Paul Rogers and Free and, and Led Zeppelin. You mentioned live albums of my youth. I guess I'll I'll start it off in no particular order. Kiss Alive One, Cheap Trick at Budokan, and yep. Zeppelin's song remains the same.
1: As your only sibling, those would be our first yes. three live albums, and and eventually we got into like Queen Live Killers and oh, yeah. the Kinks One for the Road. Oh. But oh, yeah. and Double Live Gonzo actually may have been either the fourth one, Carlo. But yeah, those, and Almond
2: Brothers Live at the Fillmore pretty early. We got that early, yeah. Of course, Frampton Comes Alive from 1976 really seemed to usher in the live album trend. Of the mid to late 70s
1: but the first three you mentioned yeah the grooves were worn out wow. on every side except for dazed and confused for 28 <laughs> minutes but just
0: let's... couldn't do it couldn't do it
1: <laughs> as, as, and as much of a lead head as i am it's just which is a little too self-indulgent for me but how about you tommy
0: well see i had an a sister Ah. still still do seven years older and her boyfriends would lend her records and she would ignore them and I would listen to them. So as somehow she, she came upon the, uh, the uh, kiss alive record. And I, I had that and then I got it for myself, but that was probably my first live album. And of course I loved
2: it. That whole cold gin rant that Paul Stanley does. Like, I think if we were ever In a situation where we had to prove our identity to each other we could use paul stanley banter from a live one i know tony and i do a lot of paul stanley banter and i know i played a tremendous amount of air guitar to black diamond which i think is one of the greatest live songs ever you know speaking about banter here's one how about mick on the stones love you live album the way he introduces the band
0: Oh, um, we used to repeat that to each other all oh, the time. Oh, that's right, Tommy. Like, you
2: were in on that, too. I remember oh, yes, that.
0: And Charlie's good tonight, isn't he?
2: <laughs> Shall we introduce the band?
0: I think I busted a button on my trousers. <laughs> Hope they don't fall down. You know, my trousers
2: fall down now, do you? Uh, th-
1: so that that's from Yayas. Oh, I think
2: oh, that's, that from Gaius. Gaius. that's from Yayas. That's from Yayas. Love
1: You Live is um, Ron Wood's gay. Bill Wyman just likes to take photographs of girls' legs.
2: And then and Charlie Watts does the dull drum thing. Yeah, boom, boom, yep.
1: o- Ollie Brown is Open for it, offers. I wouldn't say it's up for grabs. It's <laughs> open for office. Keith, of course, is completely, completely straight. straight. <laughs>
0: that was it. That was the introduction of the band on Love You Live.
2: That was a. It was a phenomenal album. It was a double live album, I believe. Andy Warhol did the cover design. Correct. I don't know. I didn't know that. That was a, a phenomenal live album because at that time, the Rolling Stones, right after that, are transitioning into a kind of like some girls, you know, a little, little bit disco. We grew
1: up with baseball cards, right? So we were used to flipping things over and reading the statistics. In the same way, we grew up with liner notes. Right. And liner notes that had lyrics. It told you who the songwriters were. You'd read interviews. You knew the songs that Page and Plant wrote, and you knew the songs that Jagger and Richards wrote, and the ones they covered. And that's how we learned about Chuck Berry. That's how we learned about Muddy Waters, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, and the Yardbirds. I mean, obviously, the Yardbirds we missed. Plus, the Yardbirds got virtually no airplay during the classic rock era in the 70s, because, but for For Your Love, you really didn't hear much. It's not like you today when you listen to little steven's underground and you could hear deep sure. yardbirds tracks sure. right
2: so no, um, I, I credit y- i credit uh i credit steven tyler steven tyler totally. for actually educating me about the yardbirds there's no doubt about that
1: even even on even on a, a throwaway album like night in the ruts also known as <laughs> right in the nuts they do i think
2: love of, that album
1: they do think about it
2: is that the uh, album with walking you- in the sand correct
1: yeah they yeah. do think about it which is a uh, right. which is a i think a jimmy page era yardbirds track
0: don't go don't go uh, foo-fooing night in the ruts because i love that <laughs> album. that has one of the that has one of the best opening tracks and no surprise is right a great,
1: yes terrific, terrific track
0: I, love, I do love that album
1: he screeches okay. at the end of that too right that's mm-hmm. a, that's a that's a Steven tyler screecher like the end of draw the line Trade no surprise is a good track i have yeah. not heard that in a long time
2: it's really a flashback by how strong aerosmith was on the radio in the late 70s they became standards pretty mm-hmm. quickly
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and one of the things with aerosmith right how many times did you read that at the spectrum someone threw an M80 and hit (laughs) Steven Tyler in the eye. Like like where is is did they just attract fans who threw fireworks at them (laughs) indoors? (laughs) Because like for some reason I always associate like Aerosmith with, you know, Steven getting hit in the face with a firecracker.
0: Aren't there fireworks sounds on the live bootleg (laughs) (laughs) album?
1: Yes, yes. Before Toys in the Attic. Exactly.
2: Exactly. I think before before Toys in the
1: Attic, there's fireworks sounds. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I, I, I think you're right that's well they were menacing I think they courted danger and I remember him belting out the end of draw the line and I'm like this is amazing I thought Joe Perry was the coolest and Joe Perry is a total like Jeff Beck guy right and the fact that they had connections to our hometown in Yonkers I think we felt an affinity to them right I still do uh, I, I
1: gotta say, I, I pulled this up. Aerosmith found out just how a rough town, how rough a town in Philadelphia can be when a fan threw an M80 on stage on October 10th, 1977. <laughs> and it wouldn't be the last time they wow. learned this painful lesson. <laughs> According to Brad Whitford, we were going to back, we were going back up on stage to do the encore. I was going up the stairs right behind Stephen and Joe, and I felt the concussion of the cherry bomb going off. Stephen immediately covered his face and there was blood shooting out of Joe's arm. Wow. Literally. So pretty quickly we got ourselves to the emergency room. But apparently it happened again a year later in Philadelphia, November twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy-eight.
0: That's a tough tough town.
2: And I do believe uh, Joe Perry and Brad Whitford or the Joe Perry Project or some combination played the left bank.
1: The Joe Perry Project, I think. I think it was Joe Perry Project. I think. And who was his substitute? Jimmy Crespo?
0: (laughs) Crespo's a deep cut. I (laughs) I think you're right.
1: Tommy, what were your, um, you know, Carl and I kind of shared three plus two live albums, but what were yours?
0: Yeah, I think early uh, on. Early on. Alive. Uh, alive. Uh, love You Live and yep. Get Your get Ya your Ya's yeah, Out. Uh, uh, two two Stones live albums. Also live at Folsom Prison. Um, cheap Chick at Budokan, too.
2: I did own, in 1979, Bob Dylan Live at Budokan. Mm-hmm and i and i and i should tell you when i got home from Sam Goody and i opened it up one of the great things about that double album it came with a poster of bob oh yeah but also one of my favorite albums and it's considered one of his worst albums <laughs> yeah
0: we both had that record and i have to admit that Bob Dylan live at Budokan was a record that I pretended to like at age twelve. <laughs> I pretended to like it. I tr- I tried. It was but an like,
1: acquired like, taste for a twelve-year-old.
0: You know, it's just like you know, <laughs> I, I wasn't ready for the songs not to sound like they did. Right. Or yeah. sound
2: like such departures. What he had this kind of big, I don't want to say kind of like a Rolling Thunder Review band. But he had a pretty big band uh, with Billy Cross and Rob Stoner, et cetera. The opening, Mister Tambourine, was fantastic. Uh, It's an uneven album, but to this day, it's very sentimental to me. For sure.
0: But it's it's a spotty disappointment of a live record.
2: You know, I was really pulling for Bob during those lean years. Street Legal, live at Budokan, and the Gospel Period, which kicked off with the Slow Train coming album in 1979. And the most famous song from that album is Gotta Serve Somebody.
0: Serve Somebody is fantastic. When You're Gonna
2: Wake Up, Serve Somebody, I Believe in You. Gotta Serve Somebody
1: is, uh, it's also been covered a few times. I think the Staple Singers cover it. And maybe Betty LeVette, Mm. someone, there are a a couple of gospel versions of that. The song was actually, I think if you ask me, probably made to be sung by gospel singers. Um, I still love that track.
2: And in retrospect, you realize that was a Muscle Shoals uh, production. Uh, with Knopfler Mark Knopfler and, on guitar. And, it is just a wonderfully produced album. I really was really pulling for him. There's something about those years where uh, he was uh, losing fans and losing critics. You know, I think at the end of the day, he was following his heart. He surrounded himself with great musicians. I think the especially Slow Train Coming is an impeccably produced album.
0: Carlo and I were texting maybe six or seven months ago where I I was listening to the extended version of get your yaya's out. Mm -hmm. And I was just like blown away at how great that sounds. And uh, my two-year-old, he was listening to it along with me and he was like dancing. He was loving get your yaya's out. I actually
1: think, Get Your Ya Yas is an absolutely flawless,
2: mm-hmm.
1: flawless live album, and 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 obviously, if you've seen the movie mm-hmm. uh, Gimme Shelter, Give me shelter. Um, you really get a sense of what it must have been like for those kids in the front row to see Mick Jagger on stage in, in totally his prime, you mm-hmm. know, it, oh, yeah. and, and and Mick Taylor just slots right in. Oh, um, incredible! If you ask me, he is one of the reasons why that album is such a joy to constantly listen to because I think that he's with the band what not even
2: six months. For me, as someone who plays guitar, I I found, you know, he was a virtuoso. He came out of uh, the Blues Breakers. He had a lot of street cred. He plays a Les Paul. He plays Slide. I think his connection, the way he glues with Bill and Charlie is amazing and allows Keith to go off and do his own thing. But for me, what I hear on that, what dominates on that is Mick Taylor the less ball just fantastic i don't not a weak song on the album it never ever grows old and you could
1: compare it with love you live which i think was overdubbed uh oh, yeah. because they weren't happy i think with the original yeah. performances i actually like the elmo cambo side because it's clubby and mm. and yep. they do cracking they do, up they do cracking, cracking up <laughs> so good and, manish boy uh, and then like, you know, if you hear sympathy on Love You Live, it's a little, you can tell it's been overdubbed and it's,
0: Yeah. I, it doesn't I, have
1: the effect on you as you want it to.
0: Like it's no secret. Most live albums. If mm. if you listening today have forty live albums in your collection, thirty nine of them have yeah. overdub. Sure, yeah. have, have, they've gone in the studio and redone stuff. And and speaking of live albums, a, a story I, I like to tell is I was working at MTV for a while and, and producing and writing their VMA shows. Um, one year we had James Brown as as a guest, and I happened to get in the elevator at Radio City Music Hall just as the executive producer boss man was getting on the elevator with James and I had to talk to James because I had to like write an intro for him. And, and so I, I got a chance to meet him and on the elevator on the way up to the third floor at Rio city, um, the boss man, my boss, he, he goes, we got a pretty good job. Don't we? Um, <laughs> says, yeah, we, sh- we sure do. So I go in, I go into the room where they're bringing James And I said, listen, I don't want to embarrass you. And I really don't want to get all fanboy on you, but live at the Apollo three revolution of the mind is my absolute favorite (laughs) live album ever. There's no overdubs on that record. Right. And, and he goes, Ah, this guy he's, i love this cat. He's like—he he, he dug me because I, I i appreciated the fact that Revolution of Mind had no overdubs, and it, it, it is to this day like one of my favorite live albums. It is just a brilliant record. Like the the funk comes oh. right off the grooves of that record, and so I was telling James Brown this. And, um, and he, you know, it was a nice icebreaker, but I, I did feel like kind of like an idiot with my boss behind me. Like,
2: why, <laughs> why are
0: you doing this? That's You're embarrassing, great. Us, embarrassing it, it, us all.
1: It, it reminds me of when I was uh, I was living in London, and um, the pubs generally close at 10-ish. But there was one, I was living in West London. There was one in Notting Hill that was open until about 11.30. So I'm there with a friend of mine. I spot this guy at the other end of the bar, and I said, Check it out. He's like, who's that? I said, that's Mick Jones. He's like, who's Mick Jones? I'm like, who's Mick Jones? So I have to school him on Mick Jones. Meanwhile, I'm I'm an expat for about 16 months in London. So I've got nothing to lose. I see Mick Jones and I'm like, you know what? I'm I have to go up to him.
0: Can we and clarify for everybody that this is not Mick Jones from Foreigner. From
1: Foreigner, absolutely not. You are
0: you are talking about <laughs> the Mick Jones from, from the, Clash. the Clash,
1: Big Audio Dynamite, yes. and uh, so I go up to him and uh, I said, "Listen, Mick, I I don't want to interrupt, but I just want to say." Um, not only am I a huge fan, but I saw one of the matinee shows at Bonds. And I will never forget that. I was 15 years old. It's one of the first concerts I ever went to. My parents had no idea <laughs> that I was at the show. They thought you and, were caddying. And, and, and then and then he's like, oh, man, we had such a great time in New York. Oh, those were just great times. I'm like, I think you were dating Ellen Foley because I had the spirit of <laughs> St. Louis album. And now all of a sudden he's like... Yeah, it was, as a matter of fact. And, and you were you were in the Scorsese movie, King of Comedy, and all of a sudden he was with another guy and he's like, um, are you living here? Are you from New York? Do you live in New York? And uh, I told him that I lived in New York and now I was living in London. he's like, well, would you like to have a pint? And uh, so we shared a beer. This guy I went to high school with who lived in the city, he also gave me Give Enough Rope and I mm-hmm. heard Stay Free. And I'm like, that's Mick Jones. That's the same guy who's singing train in vain. Whoa. Whoa. And then, and then drug squad bank robber
0: bank robbers. One of my hundred favorite songs of all time.
1: There's that clash live album that has those palladium shows that were on the radio.
0: Yeah. I, I have that. I've got it on cassette and cassette. CD. And that brings me to something I mentioned to you guys off our air. Probably the worst or most disappointing live album is The Clash at Chase Stadium. It's such a disappointing album. It's horrible. It's terrible. And there are so many great Clash bootlegs. Hmm. Capital Theater, even Hammersmith Odeon, there's a lot of great Clash bootlegs and that band could just they crushed life and the the one live album that they actually released mm. is just a piece of garbage mm.
1: i think with the clash they were performing all the time they were a tight tight band mm-hmm. they just got weird yeah post sandinista yeah and you, you that documentary that um where it did don I... let yes
0: don yeah. Letts. It, was, terrific
1: story the cr- terrific yeah. story and you just realized it was just really sad at the end that they yeah they the second they got to where they got it just unfolded so quickly
0: mm-hmm. so quickly yeah. and uh, a, a major regret that strummer spoke about for years after was just that uh, he's like you don't break up the band like Mick Jones was uh, he he went on in the the years towards the end of his life just saying Shouldn't have broken up that band. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have kicked him out of the band. Like he's He had an attitude problem. He'd show up late, but you got to deal with that because right. what we were making was magic. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. I think we got it all. I think we we, we covered everything we we're going to cover this time around. Yeah, and don't forget, you can go
1: to Spotify and hear the playlist for this podcast episode.
2: Hey, listen, if you enjoy this, tell your friends and family. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Vinyl Salad.